You're listening to Love, Maine Radio with Dr. Lisa Belial, recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Dr. Lisa Belial is a physician trained in family and preventative medicine, acupuncture, and public health. She offers medical care and acupuncture at Brunswick Family Medicine. Read more about her integrative approach to wellness in Maine Magazine. Love, Maine Radio is available for download free on iTunes. See the Love Maine Radio Facebook page or www.lovemainradio.com for details. Now here are a few highlights from this week's program. The idea is that you want to create the people who are going to go out and create the change. Business is the most ubiquitous activity on the planet, right? And so if you really want to create change, you need to be engaging with businesses. Thinking about not just what's going to satisfy folks right now or next year or the year after, but what's going to work 10, 20, 50 years out as well. Love, Maine Radio is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Harding Lee Smith of The Rooms, and Bangor Savings Bank. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 189, Sustainability Ed, airing for the first time on Sunday, April 26, 2015. We've all heard the word sustainability and become familiar with the concept, but what does it mean to put sustainability into practice, and how do we educate tomorrow's leaders? Today, we address these questions with College of the Atlantic professor, Jay Friedlander, and University of Maine School of Law professor, Sarah Schindler. Thank you for joining us. One of the wonderful things about Maine and being in Maine is the opportunity to um, continually uh, reconnect with people that we've met earlier in our lives. And one such individual is Jay Friedlander. He's a friend of mine, and he's also the founder of the Sustainable Business Program and the inaugural Sharp McNally Chair of Green and Socially Responsible Business at College of the Atlantic in Bar Harbor. As chair of the program, Jay has developed a sustainable business curriculum focusing on how building social, economic, and environmental capital sparks innovation and creates competitive advantage. It's really great to see you again. It's great to see you as well. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for being here. I know you had to you had to drive down from College of the Atlantic, and that's uh, three hours. Yeah, about three hours, depending on depending on the weather. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful place that you've chosen to live up in Bar Harbor, but it's um, it's a little different than where you last lived, which was right here in Portland. Yeah, it is a love. It's a lovely place. You know, it's just there's trade offs, right? You know, so we have a quiet time in the winter, um, really busy summers, but. Um, we have Acadia National Park, and the College of the Atlantic is right on the ocean. Um, so it's a beautiful place. It's also a great place to raise our son, uh, Max, who's nine. You know, so he walks to school every day. It feels like a little combination of the sort of the 50s and the 70s mashed together. <laughs> and wait a minute, in what way would it be the 70s then? Well, I, you know, it's sort of the 50s because you have the small town, and you Max walks to school, says good morning to the crossing guard. Um, everyone in the town sort of looks out for each other's kids. And then it's sort of the 70s because you've got College of the Atlantic up there. Um, you have, you know, Jackson Lab. You've got MDI Biolab. So it's a very uh, educated, very progressive um, community. Well, I like it. And, and obviously, you know something about the 70s because that's about the time you and I both grew up. Right. 
Yeah, absolutely. Did you ever see yourself living um, essentially on a large main island uh, when you hit our age? You know, I, I don't. Perhaps um, it would. Which, ironically enough, we were driving. Uh, Ursula, my spouse, and I were up in Bar Harbor uh, for a weekend, and you know, we were really enjoying ourselves. We were coming off of a, a camping trip up in uh, Canada, and we had just gone canoeing for a week, and we uh, came back. And we were driving through Bar Harbor, and she turned to me and said, you know, someday it wouldn't be great to live here. And about three or four years later, lo and behold, you know, there we were. Um, and it's, it's been a great move. Uh, we definitely miss Portland, miss our friends here. Um, but it's a pretty magical place. Tell me a little bit about your background. You're not originally from Maine. I'm not originally from Maine. I grew up in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Um, I went to uh, Colgate University in upstate New York. And then, you know, did a lot of things, everything from counseling and tutoring Native American students to being a ski bum um, to eventually ending up in the Peace Corps in West Africa. Um, and then I came back, and, and it was in West Africa, actually, I figured out that I wanted to do business because I saw business as the greatest lever of change. Um, and we had, when I was in West Africa, I was in Mauritania, which had abolished slavery in 1980. Um, and so you saw, you know, on the one hand, the worst of business that people were um, being enslaved for the enrichment of others. And then on the other hand, you saw these small uh, women's cooperatives, usually, that were, had gotten together and they, women were made, able to make money, able to provide health care, um, you know, good nutrition for their families. And you saw business as this tool that could really uh, lift people up. And when I got back to the United States, I decided um, that was what I wanted to do, was figure out how you could do business in a way that uh, really lifted people up. And... Uh, at the time, that was called, you know, socially responsible business. And so I came back, got an MBA, did cons then did a little bit of consulting in New York City for Fortune 100 companies, and uh, were, then founded was one of the early folks in on O Naturals, which is a natural and organic food restaurant here, uh, based out of Maine. And O Naturals is a I miss it. I still miss it to this yeah, day. It, I do too. It closed down maybe three, four years ago, something like that. Yeah. I, I remember going to the Falmouth location, going to the Old Port location, um, just the soups and the, the just, I don't know. There was so much about it that was so great. Yeah, it was wonderful. And, and when we started it back in 2001, I mean, it was way, way ahead of its time. And um, you see the potential now that it had when you look at uh, companies like Chipotle or even what Panera Bread is doing. Um, and part of the reason it was started was to just show that you could have a place that had quick service and high quality food because everything was local, organic, uh, or wild, or all natural. And and so it's it's sad that it's gone, but it's also good to see that a lot of the ethos of it is living on in other things. Yes, I was just in the old port at Be Good, which yeah. is a natural, organic and our natural um, restaurant. And my daughters and my son and I, we really, we enjoy that. It's not exactly like Oh Naturals, but it has the same sort of idea. And every time we're in there, it's packed. Yeah, no, and I mean, I think it's, like I said, I think it was it's an idea whose, whose time has come. And, you know, with a restaurant, and there are so many restaurants in town, and you see the constant, you know, churn and turnover. And so, you know, if you take... If you ignore it for any small period of time, um, you rapidly descend into entropy, and you don't really get a second chance, especially in a food town like like Portland. 
So you don't consider it. So I, I think I, I always like to think about the whole the business aspect of all of this and this idea that we live in this culture where you're supposed to be quote unquote successful at everything, and O'Naturals did close, but it's not really a failure. It was doing it did exactly what it needed to do for the amount of time that it was in existence. Yeah, and it was around for ten years, you know. And so if you look back at the history of businesses, I mean, there's a huge cycle of creative what they call creative destruction. So new things are always. Uh, being created and and old things are being destroyed as you go on and so you know the sort of the birth growth and then failure of a business is part of the cycle I think for uh, it so it's obviously we we're sad to see it go um, there's lots of lessons learned um, but it's really what's uh, what I think is really wonderful is to see it living on and other those those value the value set living on and other concepts and other um, in other places we just did an interview with um, people from Wolf's Neck Farm, which is um, doing this big thing with dairy cows. And Stonyfield is actually sponsoring this program. So I think that's an example of exactly what you're talking about, that you know you have to create the interest early on, and then eventually things catch up, and there's enough sort of economic groundswell that you can actually make a go of it. Yeah, and you see that happening all you know all over the place and on all kinds of different industries. Everything from the automobile industry, um, you know, to the uh, food industry, and so you see this kind of movement and groundswell towards um, towards a kind of new economy that's valuing you know people in the communities they're in as well as uh, the environment and also being making really viable. Uh, profitable businesses as well. But it's no guarantee of, you know, quote unquote success, or it's no guarantee that the business will make it because you still have to deal with, you know, all the other pieces that go into operating a business. It's fun for me to think of College of the Atlantic as having this sustainable business program because a lot of people think of College of the Atlantic for its ecological bent and for its sustainability tenets, which are really important. But we also know that part of sustainability is being able to have make a living for oneself sure. and what you're doing is really helping people to kind of utilize multiple aspects of their lives to create something sustainable yeah and that's really what the college if you look back at the founding principles of the college and and what we still practice today is they want to the idea is that you want to create the people who are going to go out and create the change and you know the uh, the college was founded to give people both the knowledge and the skills to go out and affect change in the world and what you see is business is the most ubiquitous activity on the planet, right? And so if you really want to create change, you need to be engaging with businesses. The other thing that they've found at the college is a huge percentage of uh, students go out and become entrepreneurs because they're, they're at the school, they have a self-directed curriculum, it's completely interdisciplinary. And so they're looking for, and they're looking, they have a different perspective, so they're looking to make their own mark in the world. And as a result, many of them become entrepreneurs. And I would say the school is extraordinarily entrepreneurial. They bucked off all of the traditional trappings of higher ed uh, when they were founded. So you know, with all those things, you know, it makes sense that there's uh, business in the curriculum. You and I worked on a project together um, because we were supporting the organization Safe Passage and a book that I had participated in editing and writing for, Our Daily Tread. I had asked you to um, get your marketing students involved and help us market. And this was pretty early on in social media, the social media time frame. So it was interesting to me that the students came back with these great plans. I think I gotta, I've got to say this was at least seven years ago, something like that. But um, 
they, you were doing things that were utilizing the latest technologies and also these business and marketing ideas. Yeah, and so much of what we do there is, and, and a lot of what we do in the sustainable business program, but also throughout the college, is this idea of merging thought and action. Um, and so with the, the Daily Tread project, you know, so students can talk about the theory of marketing and social media, but when you experience it, something a little different happens, right? People get uh, more, ex because when they have something real to latch onto, they get more excited. They want to um, study more deeply, and then they want to apply those things and see, like, wait, where does this idea and the practice of it match up? And what are the, you know, it's not only not enough to talk about it, but you learn so much more by getting out there and doing it. The, you know, the, the learning, um, the students become more engaged, and the learning is a lot deeper. And so we do that all over the curriculum, and we actually, you know, building off of that class, uh, we now have students who are starting up businesses as part of their education. Um, and so rather than most schools where there where people who are interested in entrepreneurship and starting something up are doing it as a side to their classes or rather in spite of their education. You're doing some interesting work with the Outer Islands. Yeah, we just finished a, a project where uh, we took a group of College of the Atlantic students and I co-taught this class with uh, another COA professor, Anna Demio, who teaches uh, physics and sustainable energy. And we took them and grouped up with the Island Institute and took folks from the outer islands and combined them with College of the Atlantic students and took them over to the carbon negative island of Samso, Denmark, to see how they uh, converted that island to, to become carbon negative and now it's moving towards fossil free. Um, and then the students came back and worked on projects out on the outer islands. Um, it was a pretty, incredible experience. That's such a great connecting of dots. You have um, Maine students, you have people who live on Maine islands, and then you're going over to Denmark and you're you're looking at a model that already exists that maybe we could learn from. Yeah, and, and what the students see is it's not about taking what they did on Denmark and just copying it, but understanding how did they garner all these resources? What did they do and what are the resources we have in our communities? Um, the problem out on the main islands was particularly poignant because they have some of the most expensive uh, electricity and heating costs in the country. So um, they're really motivated to make change. And for the students, they could work with these islanders and also on Mount Desert Island um, on projects that they could get their arms around and make real suggestions and be real participants in uh, over, the, over the course of the term. And they've stayed connected with them after the term is over. So uh, that project just ended in the fall, but there's lots of pieces that are continuing to ripple out from it. Talk to me about the abundance cycle and what that looks like. So the abundance cycle is a model and a framework that I developed essentially when I was at O Naturals and I was also teaching MBA students down at Babson College where I still teach um, down there as well. And we were merging, what I was trying to do was merge together all this stuff I was seeing every day around sustainability and what people were talking about. And then uh, business, uh, merging those with business models and frameworks that MBA students were using, essentially to kind of unite the languages and the thinking so that an MBA student could see this and say like, oh, wow, I get it. This is a way, um, this is a framework that I'm familiar with and a way to, um, that I could find new opportunities. I could innovate, I could save costs and as well uh, have all these positive other effects like uh, solving social problems or building natural capital. So it was really bringing together these two things in a common language because so often uh, it's the language barrier that creates the problem and you have someone talking about sustainability speaking one language around carbon or around environmental problems and then you have 
a business person over here speaking another language around profits. Um, and as a result, even though they may be saying the same things, they don't hear each other. So it was about bridging those gaps and, and putting them together. It's been really interesting now as the model's been developed to see the uh, reception that it's gotten. So um, I've been giving talks on, on a pretty wide range of places from Japan, you know, over and going over to the UK and Switzerland this winter to give some talks there. So it's interesting to see as it started gaining some traction. I like the idea because I, I believe that one of the, one of the I guess, marketing issues that the ecological movement has had is that, that there's a perception of scarcity. Yeah. There's a perception that we are, we need to buckle down and not do things and not consume things. And, and what you're talking about is just, you know, redirecting resources and being mindful, really. Well, yeah. And, and that notion of scarcity that to be sustainable has to be a trade-off is exactly the wrong idea. And what you're looking for, and, and I think what you, what you want to do and what most folks who are entrepreneurs want to do is it's not about that idea of scarcity. It's about new opportunities and finding new ways to do things and doing them in ways that where you can kind of have your cake and eat it too. So you have like win, it's, you know, you know, win, win, win all the way around. So you have something that's profitable, new enterprise that's using less resources, that's restoring the environment. Um, and you see this happening all over the world and huge you know, Fortune 500 companies to small, teeny startups to you know projects in the U.S. to overseas, um, and it's and that's what the reason we talk about abundance versus sustainability is exactly what you're talking about. It's this idea of just sustaining where you are and like, oh, I have to take a shorter shower and then therefore I'm saving resources, um, versus wow, I'm going to have to come up with a new, entirely new ways of doing things. Um, that that's so exciting. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Bangor Savings Bank. For over 150 years, Bangor Savings has believed in the innate ability of the people of Maine to achieve their goals and dreams. Whether it's personal finance, business banking, or wealth management assistance you're looking for, at Bangor Savings Bank, you matter more. For more information, visit www.bangor.com. We at Love, Maine Radio enjoy a special relationship with Apothecary by Design. Join us in the offices of Maine Magazine for Seeing Maine, Profiles of Resilience, which features photography by Smith Galtney, capturing the story, struggles, and victories that form the changing face of HIV and AIDS in Maine. This photography exhibit will be available from March 27th to April 24th at 75 Market Street, the offices of Maine Magazine. We hope you take the time to stop by. Jay, when you and I first met, you, well, you're my age, so I still consider myself relatively young. You were pretty young, and you ended up with um, a, a cardiac event, a heart event yeah. that was pretty significant for you. Talk to me about that. Yeah, so um, I had developed, and no one still to this day really knows why it happened, but I had developed an atrial flutter. And so my resting heart rate was, you know, like 120 to 140 at different times, just would randomly pop up. And it was something, you know, that I didn't really know about um, and discovered one day when I was running on the East End um, and really couldn't, I was having trouble finishing the run and then went home. Um, and I lived on a third floor walk up and walking up the stairs was a bit of a burden. And then so I just went to uh, Brighton Medical Center to get checked out. and. I still remember when they said to me, like after they were they checked me in and they're taking my heart rate and they're like, okay, we're gonna um, get you a wheelchair and I was like, a wheelchair? What are you talking about? We're like, oh, we don't think your heart should be under any more strain than it's under. Um, and so, 
I went in and uh, they what the, I they checked me into the hospital, brought me over there in an ambulance, and then uh, did what they call it. They cardio cardioverted me, which is basically they take paddles and shock your heart back into rhythm. So that's that's a big deal. And at the time, you had a young child and a wife, and you know a pretty um, high intensity career. So did that change your focus in the way that you approached your life? I mean, the heart thing seemed really random, and it doesn't. And then what ended up happening with the whole thing is I get, I ended up getting some surgery that really didn't work. Um, and then I went on some medication, and that seemed to get things stabilized. Um, but the heart thing, I have to say, was less of the, – the biggest adjustment I had with that was um, I don't drink because apparently alcohol was a trigger, um, which was really odd and I guess just happens in some people. Um, I think the bigger piece for me that caused change was having a small child um, and really – uh, assessing, you know, is the life I was leading was, you know, crazy. I was, we was, I was running the franchising for All Naturals. I was traveling all over the country, working really long hours, and, uh, you know, a lot of this became about: Can you? Is this a lifestyle that you can have if you want really want to have a family and spend time with your family and be there and not be exhausted and all those things? Um, so that was a, sort of a bigger impetus for change. Well, the reason I ask is I believe this must have happened when you were somewhere in your thirties. Yeah, probably late 30s or just about 40, yeah. And which is a time when a lot of people have been kind of doing what they think is expected of them, following a path, you know, working hard, and then something happens that physically often yeah. um, that reminds them that, you know, life is actually finite, that the there are bigger factors at play. And then whether it's Max or whether it's the heart thing, yeah. you know, you kind of have to really build your own sustainable life. You have to actually create in your life the thing that you're talking about when it comes to business. Yeah, and and that's absolutely true. And I think for for us, for myself and Max and Ursula, we, you know, that decision to, you know, move over to academia um, and go up to College of the Atlantic and kind of pull back from the you know the crazy life we were leading in Portland, um, where we were both working very long hours, traveling a lot uh, for work, or at least I was traveling a lot for work. It was definitely a very conscious decision, you know, took a huge pay cut. Um, but deciding that, wow, this is a, you know, a, let's try a different style of life. Um, and it's so far it's worked out great. I mean, we have the, uh, we do a lot during the year when the school is in session and in the summers, we spend a lot of time traveling, um, and going backpacking and canoeing and doing other things like that. Um, so that decision has been you know, has been really good. But yeah, it, I think there's definitely an event like a heart thing or having a child in our case was really, it can, it makes you step back and evaluate like, wait a minute, what am I, what am I doing? Is this the life that I want? There is a lot of resilience that comes along with being 20. So there's a big difference between when you're 20 and when you're 30 and when you're 40 and life does kind of evolve along. But I, I don't know that we do a great job with looking at lives and understanding what we can actually accomplish over the course of them given our ages which i think is interesting because we actually look at businesses and we say okay here's a lifespan of a business but it's almost as if um we don't do that as well with human beings yeah and the accounting i so a, a blessing and a curse of the business and i would say the life is like the with is accounting and so oftentimes with business the accounting seems fairly straightforward, right? It grew, it 
multiplied, there were many of it, or um, it enabled people to have a life. Um, and you can look at the, the numbers financially. Um, and then even and with sustainability and abundance and a life, it oftentimes is, gets a lot more complicated and nuanced. And so wh- who's to say, you know, I, I think this is for me where it becomes personal. It's like, are you leading the life you want to lead? And that life will change as your life changes and as you have new events. And so the life I led at 20 is not going to be the same as you were saying as the life I'm leading at 40 and the things I'd hope to accomplish. And this is a, you know, are become are different. And then as you get in different areas and careers, those things change too. So in academia, you know, now I'm starting to look at, well, do I want to publish and what does that look like or write a book? And, um, and those are things I hadn't really thought about before. Um, and one on my radar and then having a kid was like, well, I'm spending time working on this presentation and my son Max is looking at me saying, hey, though, I want to play. I want to build, you know, a house for uh, the leprechauns on St. Patrick's Day or I want to go outside and wrestle in the snow. And and so those are all there's always this calculus of going back and forth of, you know, what is it you want to lead and what life are you trying to build? Sometimes the life that you're trying to build isn't even really apparent to you because there is no model. I believe, though, what you've been doing as you're the you're the inaugural Sharp McNally Chair of Green and Socially Responsible Business. So inaugural means you're the very first one. So you're building a model that didn't previously exist, and that's an enormous leap of faith. Yeah, although I'd, I'd say if you looked at my past or as I look at it and try to see themes in it, um, and I look back, I I have a large entrepreneurial trend myself so taking something and starting it taking something that was not there it was a tabla rasa and then making something out of it is something i seem to enjoy doing or i seem to fall into it a lot um and it was that way in you know as i look back it was that way in the peace corps um it was that way after i left school uh after i left college Um, it was that way even the consulting it was a brand new practice area um, so it seems to be something I enjoy doing. Um, certainly it was that way with O-Naturals, which was changing every day. Um, so for me, that's something that is fun. And um, yeah, so I keep I keep ending up there, whether consciously or, or not. Um, but I also think the life is what you, things are what you create, you know, and, and what you make of them. So going in something that's a blank slate, like the Sharp McNally chair, um, you know, to me is fun and exciting. And then, you know, I can create what I want to see. What exciting things do you have going on at College of the Atlantic right now? Well, I'd say uh, we're ta- after our trip out to SAMHSA, um, we're taking a little bit of a breath because um, that was definitely a huge experience. Um, the thing that's happening, there, are, I'd say the two big things that are happening right now is one, uh, we have a sustainable enterprise incubator called the Hatchery where students start businesses as part of their education. And that's about to start up in the spring. And it's always a really fun time because you have students who are testing out ideas. And so we have one person who's working on uh, sustainability issues around on MDI. We have another person who is uh, working to create a hydrogen car conversion kit. So things something uh, car could run on hydrogen fuel. Another person starting a program in the arts. Uh, another person working on a food systems business. So this is always a really fun time for me because I get to work with students who are thinking about starting something up and want to do entrepreneurship, but but with a net. Um, I'd say the other thing that's been really fun is the abundance cycle. Um, and I've got a book chapter I'm working on for that. I'm giving talks on that uh, in the UK and in Switzerland in the coming weeks. Um, so that's also that's also been happening. And it'll be spring, which is always a good time on Mount Desert Island. 
I always enjoy conversations um, in which people feel passionate about the lives that they're living, and in no small part because when we have these conversations on air, other people can hear them and say, there's that guy. I'm listening to this guy. He's talking about living this life that um, resonates with him, that it feels authentic to him. And I, I think that's really important because sometimes we get locked into this idea of who we should be or who others want us to be. So this has been a great conversation. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I think that that piece is so important about the uh, about living the life you want to lead. And I know there's been more than a few times, and especially during the first year at College of the Atlantic, my wife and I would look at each other and I'm like, oh my God, this is an incredible, like, incredible that we get to do this. And it's there. The thing we realize is you can always change, right? And that's, and there's always this fear of like, what if I do this? But you, you always have that option. And so you should, you should take it. Jay, how can people find out about the work that you're doing at the College of the Atlantic or other work that you're doing on the Abundance Cycle? Yeah, they could go to the College of the Atlantic website. There's a whole page on the Sustainable Business Program. And for the Abundance Cycle, they could go to AbundanceCycle.com. And they could see. And there's a few things there. There's a TED Talk uh, there as well, an article from Triple Pundit. So. We've been speaking with Jay Friedlander, who is the founder of the Sustainable Business Program and the inaugural Sharp McNally Chair of Green and Socially Responsible Business at the College of the Atlantic in Bar Harbor, and also a friend of mine. It's really great to have you um, in for this conversation. It's great that you were able to come back to Portland. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Lisa. This has been, been wonderful. As a physician and small business owner, I rely on Marcy Booth from Booth, Maine, to help me with my own business and to help me live my own life fully. Here are a few thoughts from Marcy. When was the last time you took a break from what you were doing, from the work that was piled up on your desk, and just looked up? I know that during the course of my days, I often forget to take a moment or two to just breathe, look up at the sky, and dream. Terrible that I have to remind myself to breathe, but when I do, I feel energized because in those moments, I'm able to let go of the daily grind and think more about what I want to accomplish, how I want my business to grow. Sometimes those are the aha moments. If we all took a few moments out each day to stop what we're doing and dream a little about our business futures, not only would we feel a great sense of calm, but we may come to realize that these dreams can, in fact, come true. I'm Marcy Booth. Let's talk about the changes you need boothmain.com This segment of Love Main Radio is brought to you by the following generous sponsors. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage in Yarmouth, Maine. Honesty and integrity can take you home. With Remax Heritage, it's your move. Learn more at rheritage.com. Today on Love, Maine Radio, we have with us Sarah Schindler. Sarah is a professor at Maine Law who is quickly earning a national reputation for her scholarship, which focuses on the intersection of sustainable development and land use. At Maine Law, Sarah teaches property, land use, local government, real estate transactions, and animal law. She is also a musician skilled at playing multiple instruments and an avid urban cyclist. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. 
Sarah, your name has come up a lot lately here at um, Maine Magazine and Oldport Magazine, and just in general, there's some sort of something about you, I guess, that people are starting to talk about. And I know you were recently you recently did a TEDx talk. I did. So why, why is it the people why is it that people are so interested all of a sudden on things like sustainable development and land use? Hmm. That's a good question. I think there's a few issues. So I think in Portland right now, we're seeing something that perhaps we haven't really seen um, in many of our lifetimes living here, which is uh, a renewed interest in development on the peninsula. And I think that's getting a lot of people talking about what we want our city to look like. And um, there's, you know, a, an idea that we need more housing. You know, um, a lot of my friends who are renters, especially, but also folks who are trying to buy homes, are finding that it's too expensive. They have to go off the peninsula. They can't even find an apartment within their price range. So there's this recognition that rent's getting high. There aren't enough places available. Um, and so we need development, especially uh, middle-income housing. Um, at the same time, I think we're feeling a pushback from some people who are saying, whoa, we don't want our city to change too much, right? Uh, I think in the abstract, a lot of people think that density is a good thing, right? If we build up instead of out, we can avoid sprawl, we can concentrate um, creative people in an urban environment, and that's what we want. And we hear all about how density is good, and from an environmental perspective, it's good to have more people concentrated where the services are and decrease the reliance on cars and all of this. But when it comes down to having uh, you know, a 10-story building next to your single-family home, people start feeling differently. And um, so I think there's a, a conflict there right now in Portland between what we think or say we want and what we actually want in our neighborhoods. And I think people are starting to explore those feelings and explore what it will mean for the city of Portland, especially the peninsula, as more and more development is, is proposed and created as our city becomes more uh, interesting to tourists, to wealthy people, to creative people, to young people, um, folks who want to be here but are going to need places to live and places to work if they come. So I think that's definitely going on right now in the city of Portland. Um, I guess the other thing I would say is uh, a lot of my research and work also focuses on urban sustainability in the context of food and food systems. And as we know, food in Portland is a huge topic, right? We're having more and more restaurants opening each year, great restaurants that are getting, you know, rave reviews from national publications. And there's also a lot of folks who are moving into the farming sphere. Um, and so there's a lot of discussion around what we want our, our food laws and food regulations to be, how restrictive, how can we be local and still be, um, you know, looking out for our health and safety and things like that. So what you're talking about really is the, the very definition of sustainability, which is um, able to do something over the longer term that's going to be beneficial to all involved. I mean, it's really, it's not the flash in the pan, we're going to recycle our tin can today. It's like, how do we plan forward so that we can make things good for everybody? Yeah, that's definitely true. And right, thinking about um, not just what's going to satisfy folks right now or next year or the year after, but what's going to work you know, 10, 20, 50 years out as well. You take a very personal approach to sustainability. Uh, you're a vegan, you're an urban cyclist. You're really trying to practice what you teach. Hmm. Why make those choices? How did you come to that place where you said, okay, I'm going to do this personally, I'm going to do this professionally, this is important to me? I guess in my mind, it's never, there's never been a separation between the personal and the professional. And maybe that's why. Um, I got into this field from a professional standpoint because for me, 
So I became a vegetarian when I was five and sort of slowly progressed toward veganism when I was around 20 or 21. And, uh, and for me, that was always a very personal choice. You know, it was sort of my view of the world and my view of animals and my, you know, feelings about humanity and, and humaneness and um, ethics and morals and all of these things. So I guess that was a decision in my personal life. But for me, my professional life needed to reflect those viewpoints. So when I went to work, I was a, a lawyer in San Francisco for about five years um, before moving here. And in that job, I worked for a big corporate defense firm in the environmental and land use group. And I remember when I started in that practice group, I sort of said to myself, okay, I'm going to have to say no sometimes, right? I'm going to, if, if a, a project or a client comes up that I don't feel good about, I'm going to tell my bosses I can't work on it. And that did happen a few times. Um, my firm represented the, the meat industry, basically, in a lawsuit, and I said I can't work on that case. Um, and we also, the firm also represented some clients who were doing greenfield development, sort of suburban, uh, single-family home development, and I also said I wouldn't work on those cases. And I was able to do that because I worked really hard on other um, cases and, and projects, uh, especially urban infill development projects. And, of course, there you get um, some moral or ethical questions surrounding gentrification, right? That's that's the big issue as opposed to sort of environmentalism from a sort of land perspective, you're dealing with it from a human-centered perspective. Um, so those were issues I had to confront, but for me, I felt more comfortable uh, confronting those issues and, and sort of working out with my clients a balance of how do we provide for the existing community as well as uh, create this sort of new development that we wanna bring into existing communities. So. My observation of the law is that it is a lot less cut and dry than people believe it to be. I, I, I think of myself going into medicine at one point thought, well, I'm going to go into medicine because then I'll, I'll know things. I'll be able to tell people this is right and this is wrong. Do this, don't do this. Um, having some fairly, um, being close to people in my life who are lawyers, who are attorneys, it seems very similar. There are, there's, you know, there's case law. There's, there's stuff that tells us this is what's right and what's wrong. But there's a lot of interpretation. What has that been like for you? You seem so strongly principled. So to have to like, I don't know, sift through that. Yeah, it's interesting. So I think I first got a sense of that. So I clerked for a judge um, on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in Austin, Texas, after law school, and. It was interesting because the judge was a, a conservative judge, a Reagan appointee, and I was very progressive. And so I remember being curious that he hired me in the first place. I was like, oh, why does this guy want my opinions on things? But one of the things I learned was that a lot of cases, um, no matter what your sort of political perspective, you're going to come out the same way when you actually look at the case law or the statutes or the history of how the statute was created. So even though we might not know the answer just by looking at it abstractly, when you really dig down and do the research, there is often an answer that makes sense no matter what side of the aisle you're on. Um, where that gets mixed up, I think, in some cases is when you get up to the, the issues that are coming before the Supreme Court. And as we see, you know, oftentimes we can tell right off the bat who's going to vote which way based on their sort of political leanings. And so I think that's why we have a sense that the law isn't clear, and a lot of it really does depend on the judge's perspective. And so, again, that's, that's often true. It depends on the issue. It depends on the case. It depends on how much room for interpretation there is. Um, 
But it is funny because I think a lot of people assume because you're a lawyer, they say, oh, well, I have this issue, this real estate issue. Here it is. You know, what's the answer? And the answer is, uh, I don't know. Right. So first you have to do the research. And then a lot of what we're seeing nowadays is still very unknown because it's areas of law that are evolving. So, for example, um, in the real estate realm, the development realm, the, uh, the sharing economy, right? We're seeing the rise in Airbnb. We're seeing the rise in, in Uber, um, in pop-up restaurants, all of these things that are not something that we've traditionally regulated. And so I think the government, um, both local government and state and federal government, are having a hard time sort of figuring out what are those things and do we continue to regulate them just like we've regulated, you know, industrial or commercial uses in the past or do we have to recognize that this is sort of a new, evolving, somewhat more uh, communitarian form of, of commerce? And if so, does that mean it needs a different regulatory structure? And I think the answer is yes, um, but there's still a lot of unknowns around that because it's new. San Francisco, Portland, I think in many ways they're very different. In many ways they're very similar, though. In, my, in the time I've spent in San Francisco, it almost seems as if um, it's, Portland could evolve in that direction. What have you found? Yeah, I think there are definitely a lot of similarities, and that's one of the reasons that um, when I was on the job market, when I came here for my interview— I really liked Portland. I felt very connected to it, even though I'd never been here before, because I felt that it had a very similar um, ethic and uh, similar ideals um, to San Francisco. And, you know, I mean, the biggest difference is obviously the scale. It's much easier to live here than it was in San Francisco. Um, At the same time, the flip side of that is you don't have quite as much happening, right? There's not quite as much culture. There's not quite as much energy. um, There's not quite as much activism, but it still exists. It's just on a smaller scale. So I think that was one of the biggest differences for me is that in San Francisco, sometimes you're overwhelmed by choices and, and possibilities. Whereas here, there's, oh, this is the interesting thing that's happening tonight that I want to take part in. Um, but the sort of, um, yeah, I definitely think the ideals of the people are the same. And one of the nice things is, even though San Francisco, you know, you're so close to mountains and water there, it's so hard to get out because, well, for me, I was working all the time. And then getting in my car, you know, and driving across the bridge and sitting in traffic, it just often wasn't worth it. I'd rather just walk down the street and go to a concert. Um, whereas here, it's so easy to get out of town. And uh, and I think there's a strong desire um and, you know, you see people actually doing that here, right? Not just talking about it, but doing it. And that's been inspiring to me. And I've, I've really reconnected with my um, roots, which were sort of, you know, being into nature and being into hiking and rock climbing and all of these things in a way that when I was living in San Francisco, I, I let go because it was much more about city living. Describe to me what it was about being a law professor that a appealed to you. It's, it, it sounds like this might have been something you thought about pretty early on. And a lot of people, they think, I want to be an attorney or I want to be a professor. They don't necessarily think about that specific job choice in mm-hmm. the middle. Yeah. So I think that I always, well, I, it, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to think when it began. I, I was a TA, a teaching assistant during law school. And I really liked that. Uh, I felt like I had some skill at explaining difficult concepts to my classmates or to the underclassmen. And so I think maybe that's when I started to think about it um, in a real way, as, as in this could be something I'm really interested in. And I also really loved law school. I thought it was so interesting, the way of thinking, um, reading cases, thinking about the policy behind them. That was all very appealing to me. 
And I had definitely thought about going and getting my PhD instead of going to law school, which could have also led to teaching, but it was much more unformed. You know, I was young. I didn't really know what that would entail. So when I was in law school, I had that experience that made me think, oh, teaching would be interesting. But at that point, I had already made the decision. Um, I turned down some of the fancier schools to come back to Georgia, which is where I grew up, and they paid for me to go to law school. And so it was a great deal for me. But I started thinking, oh, maybe I've limited myself because looking into it, most of my professors had gone to Harvard and Yale and Stanford, which is common in the in the field. So it was sort of in the back of my mind, but something I didn't necessarily think was realistic. And um, at the same time, I knew I wanted to to make a difference in the world, right? I had sort of these lofty um, ideals that I think many law students come with, which is I want to change the world. And the way to do that is, you know, figuring out the system and then working from within the system to change it. And that was sort of what I thought I would do. But I remember when I was in practice, still thinking that teaching, that being a law professor would be really fun. I remember I once mentioned this to, they assigned us a mentor at the law firm, this uh, female attorney who was... Um, one of my bosses, effectively, and I told her, you know, she asked me, what's your five-year plan, you know? I said, well, I'd really like to write a big article and maybe become a law professor. And she was like, oh, well, then I'm not going to give you any more work if you're just planning to leave in five years. It was very a very odd experience when I learned about, oh, mentoring isn't always <laughs> what you might think it is. Um, anyway, but when I was practicing as a lawyer, I started doing some adjunct teaching at UC Berkeley and UC Hastings, which were the two closest law schools. And I started doing teaching the animal law class there um, as a substitute, basically, for the, the fellow who taught it. Um, whenever he had a trial to attend, I would sub for him. And I got really great feedback from the students. They said, you know, you're great. Um, why don't, you know, you should be our teacher all the time. You know, like, we like you just as much as the real guy. And, uh, and so that gave me, I think, a lot of confidence. And I had been in touch with some of my law professors from law school, and I expressed these, you know, these interests to them that I was thinking about it, and they told me, oh, you should apply for this fellowship we have. We have a fellowship where we will hire someone for a year if we think they have a chance of, of you know, doing a good job as a law professor, and we'll sort of groom you, and, you know, you'll get to teach a class and write a paper. And so I applied for that fellowship back at the University of Georgia and got it. Um, and so that was a great experience. So I went back there for a year and sort of um, was immersed in the world of, of academia and uh, sort of got my um, bearings, and then went on the teaching market and, uh, and yeah, wound up here. I love that story in part because when I was in, when I chose family medicine and I was a resident, I quickly realized that I really enjoyed other aspects of family medicine, not just clinical work, which I think is probably the equivalent of legal practice. And I remember vividly having a conversation with one of my fellow residents that night that I had just, you know, I'm not sure I want to do full-time clinical work. I think I want to teach, and I think I want to write. And the response was very similar. The response was very, oh, my gosh, this isn't, you know, it's almost like you're kind of being a traitor in some Mm -hmm. ways because this is the path that they've chosen, and your path is different. So I'm thinking it must have been so gratifying to kind of dig in to what you really wanted to do, to what you really felt passionate about, and have people say, hey, you're doing a great job. This is exactly what you should be doing, and to be able to follow it through to its, I guess, to the conclusion that, Mm -hmm. you know, you should be a a law professor. Yeah. No, definitely. Um, And again, it's one of those things where, when you think something's unlikely and then it happens, it's even more exciting. So for me, it was really gratifying. And then to have had success as a law professor has also been um, very gratifying. And, you know, showing that you don't have to have gone to Yale to do it is, you know, it's still more likely. It's an easier path, certainly, um, if you do. 
uh, go to the one one of the elite schools because there's more of a it's more of a feeder system. Um, but other paths are possible, and I think that's nice to remember. It's also I think helpful that you have the ability to communicate. Um, at different levels. So you can speak to other lawyers, you can speak to law students, you can speak to the general public in a, in a TEDx talk. I mean, I, I think that that's more and more important. And we've spoken to other guests, say, in the medical, the biomedical research field, and they have to be able to do that. We all have to be able to speak a language that other people from other areas can understand now. Yeah, I agree. And I think that I'm seeing this more and more with um, younger law professors. I think there was this sense with some of the older generation uh, that they were very much, you know, about their research and focused and writing for other law professors. And there's still a lot of that, you know, in my published work, the audience is definitely, um, well, I, I, I guess I would say I try to make the audience more broad than some do, right? So I try to write not just for legal academics, but also for courts and also for, for community activists. Um, so I want to write in a way that does speak to all people because my goal is with my research that I want it to have a real world impact. And I think there's the sense that some legal scholarship is so esoteric, you know, you're writing about um, historical, you know, elements of some statute that no one's looked at for 50 years. And uh, it doesn't necessarily speak to the public in the same way. And I think there's value in that kind of scholarship as well. But what I try to do is different. And, uh, and I think you're right. I think there's, there's more of a push. And, and, and as I said, I'm seeing that more with a lot of my junior colleagues, which is let's write stuff that's actually applicable to people that's going to make a change in our communities. There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines, carefully prepared by experienced professionals, coupled with care and attention, focused on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled, you need attention, advice, and individual care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way it was meant to be. Experience chef and owner Harding Lee Smith's newest hit restaurant, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room, Maine seafood at its finest. Joining sister restaurants The Front Room, The Grill Room, and The Corner Room, this newly renovated two-story restaurant at 86 Commercial Street on Custom House Wharf overlooks scenic Portland Harbor. Watch lobstermen bring in the daily catch as you enjoy baked stuffed lobster, raw bar, and wood-fired flatbreads. For more information, visit www.theroomsportland.com. I know having two brothers that are attorneys that they're, we're still in this time where finding a job as an attorney isn't necessarily a guarantee, that you really have to go to law school because you love the law, study as hard as you can, make the connections that you can, and then hope that you're going to find a good job that you really like. What's that like to be a professor during that, a law professor during this kind of era in history? Yeah. So <clears throat> I would say that that's changing, right? Um, I feel like post-recession, more jobs are coming back. We're seeing firms hire more. We're seeing more people need legal work. You know, as I was talking about with development in Portland, um, suddenly now there's all this development. Well, we certainly need legal work to accompany that. So 
I do think it's changing. And also in Maine, we're lucky in some senses. Well, I don't know if we'd say lucky, but you know, there's this uh, large area of Maine, right? In Northern Maine and, and down East where a lot of the bar, the attorneys are, are older and they're going to be retiring in, in a few years. And so there's a, a strong need for legal work up in that part of the state. Um, but again, not everyone necessarily wants to be there. And I, I take your general point as, as valid, right? It's not as easy as perhaps it once was, or at least as the idea once was, that you just go to law school and then you get a job making $100,000 a year. Um, so I think what I've tried to do and what we try to encourage our students to do is think more entrepreneurially. So it's not necessarily, it, the only path is not, for example, the path I took, right? You don't have to go to law school and then work at a big law firm. There are a lot of other things you can do with a law degree. Um, as you said, first of all, the education itself is really fascinating. It teaches you to think in this entirely new way. Um, and you gain a lot from that experience. Um, Maine law specifically is a great deal. It's one of the most you know low-cost um, law schools in the country and, uh, and has great professors. <laughs> so I think that the experience of law school itself is valuable. But then when they get out, when the students get out, there is actually a lot that you can do with that law degree that um, having the law degree will help you more than had you not had it. And I always tell my students, especially in the, the land use and real estate fields, there's so many things other than just being a lawyer that are needed, right? There's um, development uh, groups need attorneys often or, or, or project managers, whereas we're having legal background is very helpful. Cities need attorneys to, to work on projects to help with permitting. Um, in states where there's a big environmental review process behind development work, you need folks to do the environmental review and do the analysis. Um, at the same time, we're having a lot of our students go out and sort of hang their own shingle and start their own firms. And that's also, a, a, you know, I am always impressed with the students who do that because I personally am very non-entrepreneurial, right? I, I need a little box and someone tell me what to do. And it's uh, that's sort of how I've always been. And so seeing all of these students with just these ideas and going out there and putting them into practice is really inspiring to me. Um, and yeah, makes me makes me excited for them. But I think that's part of it is is just really encouraging that non-traditional thinking. And um, at the law school, we're we're talking about partnering with with the business school and some other programs to to really help students develop those kind of uh, entrepreneurial pathways. You're obviously um, in the earlier stages of your career. You're young, which is a compliment. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, but you seem very passionate about about what you're doing do you do you have some sense for what path you'd like your life to take I mean is this are you kind of firmly ensconced in what it is that you feel like you're meant to be doing or do you have thoughts about the future I think one of the nice things about being a law professor um, and especially a tenured law professor is it gives you the freedom to explore new areas so for me this sort of space that I write and research in has been my passion for a long time. So I don't necessarily see myself straying very far from it. But I do like the possibility that I, you know, or like the idea that I have the possibility to expand if I want to. So I definitely think, you know, maybe I'll write a book, maybe I'll do more speaking um, endeavors or events uh, to try to, to share ideas and thoughts with folks around issues of sustainability or local foods. Um, but I would definitely say I, I don't anticipate leaving the field of um, academia or being a law professor because it really is, uh, I mean, it's the best job I've ever had. I love it. And I remember I remember before, you know, when I was a law, um, when I was a lawyer, I would like 
sometimes cry under my desk at work and think, why am I doing this to myself? And, uh, and that's so sad to me now to think back on those times. Um, and, and I just didn't believe that people really loved their jobs. I thought it was just something sometimes people said, but no one could really love their jobs. Maybe they don't hate it, but they might not love it. Um, but once I, I got into this, this field, I realized, wow, I, I love this and I'm excited to go to work every day. And I don't know that I would find that somewhere else. So I feel very lucky. When I, and I hope that, I mean, obviously, as a tenured law professor, I'm not in any way, like, saying, like, you're so young. I'm just saying, oh, like, no. you know, the, the passion, the enthusiasm, you know, that so you're somebody who is, I mean, you're very firmly in your career, and yeah. you still have so much momentum. And so yeah. that, I guess that was where my question yeah. was coming from. I hope I keep that up. Um, I sometimes, you know, you do wonder, uh, so this is my sixth year teaching, seventh if I consider my um, fellowship as well. And I definitely still have a lot of passion for the subjects. And, but, you know, sometimes you come in and you're, oh, I'm teaching this case again. And there are certain cases that I teach in multiple classes. So, you know, I've taught this case 15 times. And will I still have this energy and enthusiasm for it when I'm, you know, at the end of my career or even in the middle of my career? And I, I hope the answer is yes. Um, but I think that from time to time you do need to do things to shake it up and, um, you know, teach a different case one year. But, uh, yeah, no, I... I have always been, though, a very energetic person. So I hope that that does continue throughout my career. <laughs> I suspect that it will. Thanks. <laughs> um, Sarah, how do people find out about the work that you're doing or about um, the University of Maine Law School? Um, so we have a website, Google Maine Law, and it's the University of Maine School of Law. And uh, there are links there to um, most of the papers that I've written, which, as I said, I try to write for um, not only an academic audience, but for a general audience as well. And, um, yeah, so that's where they can find information about what I'm working on and what um, other folks at the law school are working on as well. And they can also uh, Google TEDx Jerigo and watch the talk that you gave. I believe that was TEDx Jerigo. Yes, exactly. I, I think this is... Um I really appreciate your coming in and having this conversation with me. One of the things that we talk about often on Love Main Radio is how to create really sustainability within the community so that people who want to stay here and have jobs and love the jobs they have and live in Maine, you know, forever and ever and ever and raise their kids here, they can. So to hear that you have a job that you love being a law professor and working on sustainable issues is very gratifying to me. Thanks. So. It's gratifying to me too. I feel very lucky. Well, we've been speaking with Sarah Schindler, who is a professor at Maine Law, who has been earning a national reputation for her scholarship. Good luck with your future. It seems like uh, you've done a lot of hard work so far, and I suspect there's a lot more great stuff to come. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Love Maine Radio, show number 189, Sustainability Ed. Our guests have included Jay Friedlander and Sarah Schindler. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Love Main Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love Main Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter and see my running, travel, food, and wellness photos as Bountiful One on Instagram. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love Main Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love, Maine Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belayo. I hope that you have enjoyed our Sustainability Ed show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. Love, Maine Radio is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, 
Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Harding Lee Smith of The Rooms, and Bangor Savings Bank. Love, Maine Radio is recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Our executive producers are Susan Grisanti, Kevin Thomas, and Dr. Lisa Belisle. Audio production and original music by John C. McCain. Our content producer is Kelly Clinton. Our online producer is Andrew Cantillo. Love, Maine Radio is available for download free on iTunes. See www.lovemainradio.com or the Love, Maine Radio Facebook page for details. Thank you.